Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Morning, everybody. How many of you are waking up, and when you wake up, you are, good Lord, it's morning, people. How many of you are like that? How many of you are more... Good morning, Lord, people, when you wake up. Awesome. Well, today we are going to make a declaration. We, most of us are an hour earlier, but we're not going to let that be the prevailing uh, word over this gathering. We're going to say, good morning, Lord. Okay. We'd meet at 6 a.m., wouldn't we? We're not going to, but we would meet at 6 a.m., wouldn't we? Amen. And let's remember that the early church started that way uh, when it was illegal to be a follower of Christ. They met in underground tombs all through the night to gather and worship and pray and read the word. So together, let's say good morning, Lord. One, two, three. Good morning, Amen. Good morning, Jesus. We thank you that you've never slept. You don't need sleep, so we can sleep. And Lord, whether we are tired or off an hour, that's not going to stop us from worshiping you because it's not about us. It's not going to stop us from digging into your word because it's not about us. It's about you. This whole thing's about you. This whole message is about you. We're going to look at a people who made it about them and then just fell short in an empty promise. We don't want to do that. And we thank you, Jesus, that you've given us hope and faith and resurrection power and grace and love. So we say, good morning, Lord. Good morning, Lord. It's Resurrection Sunday. Meet us today, we pray in Christ's name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. You have message notes? Grab them. Open your Bibles. Can I teach the Bible this morning? Can we do that? Okay. Nehemiah chapter 9. I think, I think there's going to be some liberating going on because this is so, so good for us. Nehemiah 9. Find Nehemiah in your Bible. It's pretty simple. You can go to the middle of your Bible. That's Psalms. Turn left. You'll find Nehemiah. If you don't know where that is, there's a table of contents in every Bible, okay? Uh, but get there. We're kind of in a two-week mini-series, if I can put it that way, in this book talking about spiritual renewal. Where you know The whole series is rebuild, restore, renew. We believe God wants to do something in this land, on this peninsula, but he always starts with the people of God. God never brings awakening to a land without bringing revival to his people. It's his principle throughout the scriptures, throughout history. And we're going to see that today. Here's the question I want to raise. It was raised last week. What do you do when you come to an understanding you're not where you want to be spiritually? Am I the only one there, right? You haven't arrived. You don't have the character that you want. You don't have the power in your prayer life that you want. You don't have the intimacy and relationships horizontally or vertically that you want. What do you do in moments like that? Uh, That's why Nehemiah 9 and 10, along with other scriptures, are in the Bible. Now, let's just review where we've been. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. It'll be on the screen, but look in your Bibles, okay? Nehemiah 9, 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law. Remember what's going on? The walls are built. The temple's built. Ezra comes up, the old priest. He's really old at this point. He dusts off the Torah scroll. He starts reading. It's the most amazing, almost unbelievable picture in the Old Testament. People are hearing the word of God for the first time. Many of them in their lives, they've lived outside in in exile. They haven't heard the word. And when the word is just being read, they start crying. And then one by one, they start standing. 
And the word has such power, they realize we have distanced ourselves. One of a sub-theme of Nehemiah is that God doesn't bless disobedience, never. And they realize, oh my gosh, we have strayed. And they start confessing. Six hours of reading the word, it just keeps going on and on. Maybe, I mean, Ezra's old. Maybe he's going, I gotta sit down. They're like, don't sit down. We haven't heard this our whole lives. Keep reading. And he's reading and reading, and the Spirit of God is working. They're crying. They confess. We've erred. We've strayed. And you'll see in chapter 9, the longest prayer in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible recorded, Nehemiah chapter 9. Not only will you see that, in Nehemiah chapter 9, you will see the most concise and thorough um, description and narrative of Old Testament history in the Old Testament. You want to get the story arc of the Old Testament? Nehemiah chapter 9 gives it to you. It's, it's really good. We're going to see all of that today. And they're saying, God, we've erred. We promise we'll change. We promise we'll change. And we're going to look at that and see where is the power in empty promise? Where is the power in human promise? Where is the power in willpower? How good did that work for them? There's some great stuff. They were very sincere. But we're going to see how we have it so much better than they do. Because there's an empty cross. There's an empty grave. Can I get an amen? Amen. So Nehemiah chapter uh, 9 verse 3. It says they stood. They read from the book of the law. With the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's six hours. Then they spent another quarter in confession. Circle that word in your Bible. And in worshiping, circle that word. That word for worshiping, that word for confession at its root in the Old Testament, same root. Word, same word. It means to throw down. To throw down. I had a vivid word, uh, a picture of this word about five years ago. I did a wedding uh, for um, a man and a woman. They got married right here, and then they went and took their pictures off of 280 up in the hills. And then we had our reception after that. And I remember looking at them, taking their picture. It was so cool. And all of a sudden, I saw something really strange. And here's what, I didn't know this was going on in real time, but here's what happened. The bride, when she was standing out in the field, taking her pictures, a mouse went up her dress and was in her, you know, it was like a tight dress here. And it was in her back. And she felt the itching and she turned to her husband. She's like, hey, my back, something, I think it's a rock or something. And her husband blew it. I mean, his first test as a husband, right? <laughs> he went and he felt it and it moved. He's like, ah, he got scared. <laughs> and all of a sudden she's doing this happy dance. I'm going, look at them dancing out there in the field. This is so cool. And she's like, get it off, get it off, get it off. And he, he had to unzip and just whack the mouse down. It was just, it was incredible. We still talk about it. <laughs> and then he zipped her up and, and, and then she embraced him. It was, and I'm watching this from a distance going, man, get a room, you two. This is, come on. You've waited this long? Wait, anyway. Um, <laughs> confession to throw down. Something had intruded the bride that was harmful to her. She became aware of it. She couldn't get rid of it herself. She needed a small-esque savior to come in and do for her what she couldn't do herself. He took care of the intruder. She worshiped him afterwards. Do you see the connection? That's what's going on in the Old Testament. They're face to face with the character of God. 
They're confessing their sin. The word's been read for six hours. They're throwing it down. I don't want anything to come between me and you. I don't want anything to come between me and you. We've erred. We didn't know God. We haven't had the word in our lives for hundreds of years. We're so sorry. And then they worship as free people. Right? That's what's going on. So what I want to do is walk you through Nehemiah 9 and 10 and look at what you do when you realize you've fallen short. That there's a distance between you and God, that you're not the person you thought you would be. You made a promise to God or to another person, and you're not holding up to your standard, let alone God's. Let's walk through Nehemiah chapter 9, okay? Again, the, the summary of the Old Testament, you'll find it in 9.33. If anyone asks you, what is the Old Testament about? Nine words in 9.33 sum up the Old Testament. Look what it says. And all that has happened to us, God, you have remained righteous. Like, you don't change. Can we get an amen to that? Thank God. What would we do if his nature changed? If he was as fickle as we were? Oh, my goodness. Here's the, here's the nine-word summary. You have acted faithfully while we've acted wickedly. There is the story arc of the Old Testament and our lives, right? So from nine, I'm just going to divide the chapter. Look at page two of your notes. Here's how nine breaks down. 9, 5 to 15, they start rehearsing God's character. And I'm giving you this, and you can look at it yourself. This is a great thing to do when you're on your own with the Lord. Start with rehearsing God's character. Do you know the word you is used 30 times in chapter 9? Their prayer is God-focused. God, you are this, you are that, you are this. You see it all over chapter nine, okay? And they would just rehearse God's character. You're powerful, you're faithful, you're loving. I can't tell you how many times, even this morning, you know, the alarm goes off early and I crawl to meet with the Lord and I'm, God, I'm tired, God, I'm this, God, I'm that. It's all good. But then I hear the Lord saying, oh, that's great, Gary. Can we make this about me and not about you? Because all of life is found in me, not in you. I know who you are. Focus on who I am. That's what's going on in chapter 9, 5 to 15. Then from 16 to 31, you're going to see, and you can look at it yourself, six exchanges rehearsing now the disobedience of Israel. They acted wickedly, but you remained faithful. You'll see that six different times. I'll show you one. You want to see one? Okay, good. Me too. Look at verse 17. Nehemiah 9, 17. It won't be on the screen. You've got to look in your Bible here. See the first word? They refused to listen. They failed to remember the miracles performed among them. Now they're talking about their history. They're going back over a thousand years and just talking about this cycle that's repeated six times. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion and appointed a leader in return, in order to return to their slavery. But what? What's the next word? But you are a forgiving God gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, the most often recorded characteristic of God is right there. Right there. Used like six or seven times throughout the Bible. Therefore, you did not desert them. Do you see that cycle? We were disobedient. They were disobedient. But you, we, they, but you, they, but you. And then in verse 32 to 37, they get to themselves and saying, we've done the same thing. And we need to be rescued again. Look at verse 36. But see, we're slaves today. If you want to know the end result of disobedience, spiritual disobedience, 
There it is right there. Spiritual bondage. Enslaved. We're slaves today. We're slaves in the land you gave our ancestors. Why did God give Israel land? So they could be free. But in their disobedience, they're enslaved. So that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. I love this. They don't point to other people. They don't make excuses. They point right to themselves. God, this is because of our sin. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you placed over us. They rule over our bodies, our cattle, as they please. And here's the end result of sin. Uh, we're not, I know that word sin, just it means to transgress, to sway from God's standard. Word on the street is that's the way to have fun. That this book is so outdated. Victorian, as a friend of mine says it. It's confining. This book is to give freedom. And the end result of not living in its boundaries is in this last five words. We are in great distress. Does that seem like a liberated people to you? No. Picture the scene. New walls. Brand new temple. And here's the people saying, we are in great distress. We're enslaved. God, this pattern has been going on with your people for a thousand-ish years. That's chapter 9. You, they. You, they. You, they. And here we are again. We've drifted. We know you don't bless disobedience. But we also know we've run from you. We've, and although we've run from you, we've not outrun you. Or your mercy. Or your grace. So we're turning back and running to you today. By the way, when's the last time you did that? I'm not saying you don't, because you wouldn't be here today if that wasn't your habit. But ran towards God. We're overwhelmed with God's grace and mercy and exerted your effort to pursue God in his character. So back to our original question. I'm gonna ask it three times. Here's a second. What do you do when you come to an understanding that you're not where you want to be spiritually, especially when you're aware that it's your disobedience that has caused the distance between you and God. What did they do? Look at verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document are the names of our princes and Levites and priests. Let me break this down a little bit. I'm on the bottom of page two, their response. Because of all this, really important, in light of your character, in light of what we've just rehearsed to ourselves, you don't need to remind God of anything, but we're reminding ourselves. We've just gone through the whole story arc of the Old Testament. We've seen you've never changed. Your people have this heart in them. What does the hymn say? prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for what? Thy courts above. Because of all this, it's like a Romans 12.1. We'll get there at the end of the message moment. In view of God's mercy, in view of how good God is, I could stop right here and we can go for hours. And when I just ask someone stand up and testify to how good God is, We'd have message after message after message. God is good in light of us, or in spite of us. 
What do they do? We make a firm, what's the next word? Covenant. We are the peninsula, what? Covenant church. Uh, And this word covenant is not the word usually used for covenant. Peninsula covenant, the word covenant started because in Sweden, there was a revival that swept through a Lutheran church in late 8th, 19th century. And men and women got together and said, let's covenant together to keep our hearts on fire. Let's promise together whatever God's doing in us to keep this going. That's where covenant comes from. And that's exactly what it means here. Another translation says uh, a binding agreement. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means this. They cut an amen. They cut an amen. Let me unpack that. The emphasis was on human faithfulness. Amen. This is true. It's where we get the word amen from, that word right there. And we're going to cut it. Uh, In the Old Testament and sometimes in the New when uh, you entered into a covenant with God and when you entered into a binding agreement with people, you'd sacrifice an animal. You'd cut an animal. In essence, to say, we mean business. This is going to cost me something to be faithful like this. And so we're going to cut an amen together. It's going to cost us but God's worth it. How many of you think it was worth it to wake up an hour early today to gather as the people of God? Amen. Me too. Me too. Already, we're what, what time is it? We're, we're just 25 minutes in. And I'm like, man, I'm a changed man. This is awesome. Really, I am. Thank you for being here. God, you're worth it. And then they put it in writing because they know that mental ink fades quickly. I realized when I saw that, this is what came to mind. We uncovered this about 18 months ago. This is the original charter of PCC. We've shown you this many times. This is like, you know, the the 20 families that came together in a Burlingame uh, living room. This is their binding agreement. They cut a covenant. Why'd they do that? For two reasons. One, for accountability. The same way the Israeli community did in Jerusalem, so that years down the road, if anyone would back out of that agreement, someone could knock at their door and say, you signed this. I just want to know, did you mean it? And I'm here to hold you accountable to this. You made some promises here. Secondly, as an enduring legacy. I don't think those people knew that 67 years later, the lead pastor would find that document and find so much inspiration Uh, Almost every name except one on that document are deceased and in heaven. There are a great cloud of witnesses cheering this on right now. But I gained so much encouragement. What does it say in Hebrews 11? Though long dead, they still speak. Yeah. So this is why they put it in writing, right? They meant business. Uh, And uh, it's so important that they did that. Very important that they did that. Uh, They made a commitment. What I'm getting at here is, in writing, they really made a commitment to change. To change. And that's what we're going to get into. Look at page three here. What do you do when you realize you've erred? Things need to be different? Really, here's what I'm asking. How does life change happen? I guess behind that, I would ask this question humbly, gently. What in your life is only attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit? How have you been transformed in the last year? 
What do you do when you become aware you have a habit, it's, a, it's an anger issue or it's a language issue or something else? Sin is much more of a heart issue before it's a behavior issue, but when it surfaces as a behavior issue, how do you change that? What do they do? Let's look. First of all, they made a specific commitment to change. They committed to it. Look at this. Back to 38. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. We mean it. They didn't say this. We're going to change at some point. God, bring change to our lives. They were committed. God, I need to change. I learned this last week. Uh, last weekend, my daughter and the other two services, I shared this. She ran a 50K race, my oldest daughter. That's 31 miles. Um, that's her in the middle, uh, in the b- dark blue, at the end of the race. And my job, one of the, I'll take this memory to my grave, was to cheer her on. And I could only do it in two places, mile 11 and then at the end. And at mile 11, she came down. She's still fresh. She trained really hard for this. And, and I'll never forget, I will take to my grave with my wife there. She's coming down this trail. It's a trail race, 4,000 feet of vertical climbing, single track trails, crossing rivers. This stuff, I mean, I go to hell. That's exactly what hell is going to be like if I ever went to hell. I'm not going to hell. Uh, and I don't want any of you either. We'll get to that before the end of the message. Um, but it was so inspiring. I'm like, go in. And she's like, ah, just so happy. It's only mile 11. And then I watched her go into this ravine. And I'm like, I'll see you in four hours. 20 miles later, they're coming in. I'm 15 minutes ahead of her because I'm, tra- I'm trying to track her, her pace and what have you. And people are coming in. They're so fresh. It was so inspiring. And then she comes in and I'm like, yes. And I, I left there. And I'm like, honey, I want to run a 50K. Now, I'm a, I'm a four to four to six mile runner. Do that a couple times a week, okay? But I'm like, it didn't look hard. These people were happy for the most part. Some people were cramped up, but I'm like, I could do this. And so Monday I went out to run four to six miles. I committed to change in the abstract, but when the rubber met the road, I'm not running an 850K. <sighs> so many of us treat Christ-likeness like that. I want to be godly. I believe every one of us in this room wants to be godly. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. But there's a difference between being godly and being Christ-like, between Christianity and discipleship. These people were committed to change. They put it in writing. They cut an amen. They meant it, okay? I doubt, I don't doubt that anyone that day was insincere, okay? Now look, they didn't stop there. They committed to change in community. Look at chapter 10. Just a list of names in chapter 10. And look who's first. What's the first name you see in chapter 10? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. That's called leadership, my friends. He goes, I'll I'll go first. And then you see behind him the spiritual leaders. You see the priests, the Levites. Then you see the other leaders, verse 14. Then verse 28, you see the the rest of the people. They said, we're not going to do this alone. I can't change alone. Afterwards, I was talking to Hannah about her 50K, and I said, when when did it get hard? She's like, probably mile 18 to mile 29. So what'd you do? She goes, oh, dad, here's what I did. I had called, I cleared my voicemail. 
She said, and I called all my friends, not all, but a group of friends. And I said, please leave me a voicemail for my race because I'm going to hit my voicemail when I feel like I hit a wall and can't go on any longer. And she said, Dad, I just heard, and she gave, listed names. So-and-so, his voice got in my head. So-and-so's voice got in my head. So-and-so read scripture over me. And she said, I want to tell you something. When I couldn't go on any longer, I leaned on the voice of my community to get me through that race. That's, first of all, it's a great way to live, right? Secondly, uh, this is what they were doing here. They looked at each other and said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do it either. But together we can. That's the spirit. And then look at this. They committed to change in community in specific ways. And that's what you see at the rest of chapter 10. And we don't have time to even go into it, but I listed it for you. Starting with our homes, God. Here's what happened, everybody. They were a people, an end to themselves. They hadn't had the word of God for decades, for over a hundred years. Ezra reads it and all of a sudden they come under its authority and they're like, oh my gosh, there's our lane. God, we've been living outside the lane. No wonder we're enslaved. No wonder we're in stress, uh, distressed. Because life happens and so God, we wanna get back into your lanes. And in these areas, we wanna do homes the way you say we should do homes. By the way, if this church is going to make any difference in that community, it's going to start in the home. Not here. You all act great as Christians here. You are great disciples here for an hour, most of the time. But it's the home where it's needed to be lived out, everybody. And I know that's not easy. We're going to get there, okay? Then look what else. Work. God, we want to take you to work. We don't want to leave you in a church building or in the temple. We want to take you. This is so good. We want everyone we know to know about it. And so we come to work with me, Jesus. And they're praying and you, maybe they're instilling our bless strategy, right? Believing in prayer, leading with care, eating together. By the way, I heard this line yesterday. I think it's so good. The greatest evangelistic tool we have, a meal. A meal, our, our table to share with someone who doesn't know Christ. The blessed strategy plays right in that. Serve with care, share your story. Then they go to their finances. Oh my gosh, now we're hitting home. God, we have not lived under the word. And what you're going to see in verse 32 to 33, this is so cool. None of those offerings were commanded. They gave over and above. That's when you know revival's hit. When it's not just touched your heart, it's touched your pocketbook. Then you know you're revived. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 21? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. When Jesus looks for our heart, he doesn't look at 8.55 on Sunday morning. He goes right to your bank account. and says, let me see the withdrawals. Now I'll find out where the heart is. I'm, I'm not pointing fingers, but live in that conviction. These people were revived. And then they promised the temple. I love verse 39. Look how it ends. We will not neglect the house of our God. God, we're not going to give up meeting. When daylight savings changes, we're changing too with it. Way to go. Commend you for that. We're not fair weathered. 
When we live in Rome in the second century and it's illegal to be a Christian, we'll meet in the tombs. On a work day, back then, and Sunday was a work day. That's why they had to meet in the night. Because they had to go to work that day. So they met in the tombs with dead people and had worship services. We're not going to neglect the house of God and worshiping together. So vital, okay? Isn't that rich? Isn't that good? Okay, so I'm going to trust you to live in that. The people of God, convicted by God to live within the boundaries of God, for the glory of God. Can I say that again? The people of God, convicted by God, when the word's read, to live within the boundaries of God, that's the word, for the glory of God. And that glory would spread outside the walls. That's why God created Israel. So it would spread outside the walls and the foreign peoples would go, I want in. If that's what God does through a life, I'm all in. So good, so rich, so powerful, everybody. So incomplete. If I put an amen and left here, you should fire me as your pastor. Because there's no grace in that. Have you ever heard the definition of insanity? I'll put it up here. Stephen Covey talked about this. The bottom two lines, keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. You heard of that? What has just happened? In chapter nine, they've rehearsed a thousand year history. God, you're faithful. We're rebellious. You punish. We need a rescue. We promise. God's mercy is extended. And what just happened in that gathering? The same thing. They're depending on willpower and empty promise to change their life. I'm not dogging them. They gave their best. But we're going to see next week, by chapter 13, they turned on almost every promise they made to God. Listen, chapter 9 and 10 are here to show us the impotence of human willpower and promises. I just, this is so ingrained in me because prior to coming to Christ, that was my life. I have a conviction. I read the chapter of the New Testament every day in high school. Never followed it. It wasn't my authority. It was my religion. It was if I died, I'd go to God and say, I gave you a chapter a night. Didn't obey it. And then I'd fall short. I'd experience the bondage of what happens after you party all night and and destroy people and destroy yourself and destroy your character and destroy your trust with your parents. I'm sorry, God, I'll change. If you don't let me get caught, if you don't let me get expelled, if you don't let me get suspended, I'll never do that again, only to do it again and worse. Empty promises leave us nowhere, enslaved. As a matter of fact, remember we talked about this, this is the last historical act in the Old Testament This is how the Old Testament ends. People in rebellion with empty promises. Sincere, but empty. There's no power in that. I'm not dogging them, nor am I dogging you if you're making empty promises. But I'm here as your pastor to say, there's no power in human willpower in empty promises. So I'm way over time, but I'm still going. I'm not stopping, okay? 
Here's my question the third time. What do you do when you come to an understanding that you're not where you want to be spiritually? Especially when you're aware that the distance is because of your disobedience. Where's the hope when our empty covenant promises fall short? Where's the hope? The hope is in a new covenant from a new promise maker outside of ourselves. Quickly, it's in your note, Ezekiel chapter 36, look at this. God knew, God knew the human condition. And like that groom coming to his bride, when a mouse was in her dress, the foreign intruder, Jesus came to his bride to remove what was killing us. God prophesied this in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a, what? New heart and put a new spirit within you. Your heart, your empty promises aren't working anymore. So I'm gonna run to you and give you what you need the most and you can't earn it, you can't promise yourself into it. I'm giving you a new heart. I'm gonna take your heart of stone and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I'll actually put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That was in Ezekiel. Then there's 400 years of silence. And then through those new shiny walls, one day walks the hope of the world, Jesus. And 33 years into his life, he raises a glass in, those, in that city, within those walls, inside of that temple. And he says, I'm making a new covenant with you. I'm done with your empty promises. So I'm making a promise that I'll never turn my back on. Come on, is that good or what, right? God is so good. So we can live on the basis of Jesus' resurrection power instead of our empty willpower. I was reminded of this, and I, and I, I do have to wrap this up, but I got a text from a guy that I've been discipling for about seven years. And you know, in this day and age, you don't just disciple people, apprentice people once they become Christians. In this day and age, and Ben, you model this so well, Pastor Ben, you disciple people to Jesus and then continue to disciple them. For seven years, meeting almost every month, this man lived on empty promises. This man lived on that and, and, and intellectually had to get his mind around Jesus and what have you. And then on Friday, I get this text. Sir, I, and I don't know why he calls me sir, he's older than me, and I, anyway. I just wanted you to know, I became a Christian two days ago. I became aware of that yesterday in the shower as I reflected on my day and realized as I've been reading the Gospel of Mark, the Word of God, that morning, it wasn't just words in a book. It wasn't just someone's story. It was a real living account of God as man in the person of our Jesus who was laying out the truth for anyone to accept. Even texting these words doesn't convey my quiet, confident, humble, brokenness, tear-filled joy and inner excitement. Then he put, remember, I'm an introvert. <laughs> I know you get the picture. I'm blown away. I'm happy. I'm knowing my life will never be the same and confident that so much good is to come. Words aren't enough, but it's okay. 
He was done with the promises and God met him in the reading of the word. Jesus displayed himself to him and said, let's live on my promise, not on yours. Let's pray. Jesus, you're coming to each one of us because we all are the people of Nehemiah 9 and 10. We all have brought you promises and 2 Timothy says it so well. We have been faithless, but you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Wondering if there's anyone here who could just agree with me that empty promises have no power. Willpower has no power. And you would say with me, I want Jesus' power. I want his life. I want to live into that new covenant. Whether you've never done it before or you're renewing your commitment to Christ, make my words your words. Jesus, I need you. I love you. I thank you that when I was helpless, you came to my rescue. I thank you so much for that new covenant. And today I'm laying down my promises. I'm giving you the rubble of my life. I'm clinging to your promises. Make me new. Give me the power to change. My hope It's all in you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for running to our rescue when we are helpless. Thank you for awareness and new life. We're giving you ours anew and afresh. Revive us, Lord. Give us a heart for your word. You said you'd give us a new heart. Increase our heart. Jesus, we see you so clearly in Nehemiah 9 and 10, and I bet you show up all over the Bible. So give us a hunger for it. Not for our sake, but for your glory and for the awakening of this city and the systems of injustice and what's broken. Use us to make things right. But start here, Lord. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.